0: It is my pleasure to introduce our um, guest author this evening. Um, Deborah has been here before and we welcome her back. Uh, She's going to talk about her new book this evening. Um, But I'd like to briefly give you a little background on Deborah. Deborah Mathis is a print and broadcast journalist. Deborah is a teacher and an author whose work has appeared in countless publications. She is also the author of Yet a Stranger, which was published in 2002, and What God Can Do in 2005. Deborah is with us this evening to talk about her new book, Soul Sisters, The Joys and the Pains of Single Black Women. And I'm excited. I was was saying to Deborah, it is a funny book on one hand, and on the other hand, you can relate to it. So I'm just excited that Deborah is here, and I wanted to get started on time because I want you, if you have not read this book, we do have copies back there for you to buy, so I want Deborah to really plug this book. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. So Deborah, please come and talk to us about this book, Soul Sisters, The Joys and the Pains of Single Black Women. Please
1: give Deborah a hearty welcome. And thanks thank for coming, you. Deborah. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I see some familiar faces from uh, a few years ago when I had the pleasure of being here to, uh, to talk about Yet a Stranger Why Black Americans Still Don't Feel at Home. Um, and so I thank you for returning. Uh, to hear me talk about Soul Sisters and you notice that the title is spelled S-O-L-E a uh, little play meaning Singular Sisters The Joys and Pains of Single Black Women I've had a lot of my white friends ask me why in the world I uh, went and limited it to uh, black women since they're going through a lot of the same kind of pains and joys um, but we have a unique uh, unique set of conditions that have created our single status or or lessened the pool of available men for us. Um, I have to say that ours is probably more public policy driven uh, in the wrong direction, of course, than, uh, than biological or anything else. But there are some funny things to be said about this uh, kind of timeless search for a good mate. Uh, you have to laugh sometimes to keep from crying about it. And um, just to give you a little taste of kind of the, the the mood of the book, I'll do a little bit of reading from the first chapter, um, which has to do with shrinkers. So what I did with this book is give is categorize the women kind of about what their their styles were in dealing with the search for men, some want to be married, some just want a guy to have fun with every now and then, some want a really monogamous relationship, but not necessarily marriage, some don 't want anything to do with men I mean you just have the, the the full gamut and what prompted me to do this was that I saw with my two grown daughters um, beautiful. Funny, fun, uh, decent, capable young women, all, and all of their friends, young young women, doctors, and you know, forensic pathologists, and you know, really educated young women, and sharp, and gorgeous, and just fun as could be. Can't find a man to save their lives, and I'm thinking, what's happening here? This is really some kind of shift from when, you know, I'm 54 years old, when I was in my 20s, um, you know, most of us were kind of headed in that direction at least, and what's going on? Something has, has changed. Then I start seeing that it had just permeated every age group, every economic group, every educational level, every religious group, it didn't matter. And I ran into women on, in elevators, at bars, in libraries, at church, everywhere I went, who could tell me a story or two. So I thought, well, I'll take a look at this. And once I started looking at the statistics, I saw that that statistically it was bearing out what I was finding casually. And that made me know something's happening. Because what I think... Is the real danger here, and some people may think this sounds alarmist and extreme. I re- I realize that, but believe me, I've been called worse. I believe that if we continue down this road of unmarried women, uncoupled people, and at the same time, the number of women, of black women, who will choose to have a child without the benefit of marriage, is Diminishing. That means fewer. If you're having fewer weddings, and then you're going to have from that fewer babies, we're going to go away. This is the this is the way any species or par, sub subspecies becomes extinct. It's either wiped out, or it stops reproducing itself, and it goes away. Now that to me is about as frightening as anything I can think of. And I think that there really is a danger bell being sounded for the black family. Something's got to give. But in the meantime, a little bit of laughter about the way we approach it maybe. Not that this book is all funny. Some of it will make you cry. I've heard some women say it made them angry and others say it scared them to death. Um, but almost everyone also talked about how funny it was. And I thought about, um, in coming here today, I thought, I wonder if I ought to do this reading the way I heard a, a woman author do on the radio this morning. And the way it seems like I hear so many of these, they start reading like this. I thought, you know, what happens to this this effect that they're trying to pull off? And I thought, no, I can't quite do this, so I'm just going to have to give it to you the way, w- the way I intend it. <laughs> That's why Michelle and I used to go out practically every Friday night and many Saturday nights for a couple of years. Naturally, we wore black. We never planned it. In all of the back-and-forth phone calls about our nights out on the town, we never once discussed attire. It was just a coincidence that we were similarly dressed. Black is, after all, excellent camouflage for the middle-aged truth. The young sweet things, the flat bellies, the veteran barflies, and the serious hoochies would have opted for something more daring than black pants, suits, or skirts. But our purpose was not to call too much attention to ourselves because, well, because we wanted to be careful about what we were asking for. It had been ages since either of us had tested the nightlife as single women, and although we were accomplished mothers and career women, the club scene made us nervous, even in a club that catered to the -the over-the-hill crowd. The first time we went, we were delighted to find the place overflowing with revelers by the time we arrived just past 9 p.m. Many of them had been drinking and carousing since happy hour and had established positions in, and positions at the bar or the tables that ring the dance floor. I'm convinced that the reason we were asked to dance again and again that night and the reason many men sent drinks to our table was simply because we were fresh meat. Once we became familiar faces in the place, both the dance invitations and the drinks dried up. Nothing else accounts for this. We were still the same fun-loving duo, dating ninjas dressed head to toe in black. To be honest with you, it was just as well that the men stopped catering to us because almost none of them had any potential, if you know what I mean. A lot were old enough to be our fathers, a few were young enough to be our sons, and a good many obviously had wives back at the house, and far, far too many of them couldn't participate in a decent conversation. There was also the batch of horny cats that tried to grope us on the dance floor or on a couple occasions flat out proposed a hitch in the sack. Michelle was always cool and precise in putting such men in their place, but me? I usually caused a minor scene cussing the fools out and making them wish they'd never let a hand slip below my waist. I could tell you some stories about those scenes. One night, a familiar fellow sauntered over to our table and promptly informed us that the regulars at the bar considered us unapproachable and somewhat snobbish. High society was how he put it. As this man explained it, our tendency to turn down offers was behind this reputation. That, coupled with the fact that we almost never worked the room upon arrival, but went straight to our table and stayed there all night. I was disturbed by the rap at first, but I soon came to appreciate it, however ill-formed it was, since at least it meant we were not being seen as eager or desperate." Of course, we knew we weren't desperate, although one might wonder why we had nothing better to do with our Friday and Saturday nights. Maybe location had something to do with it. There is hardly a worse place in the whole country to be black, female, and single than Washington, D.C., Women outnumber men substantially, and men who grew up in the nation's capital or who have spent a lot of years here tend to take advantage of this disparity. They know they're in demand. Even the sorry ones know. Maybe, maybe that's why Michelle and I never made a love connection. We were too into the formalities, that slow-moving, let's-get-acquainted, and passion and conversation and laughs mode. We were being particular in a town where supply and demand were completely and perennially out of balance. We kept hope alive for a long time, Michelle and I, but after a while, our partying, our, our partying, partying attempts tapered off. Chinese food and Pepsi became my Friday night date. A glass of wine became Michelle's. Now, if I call her after 8.30 p.m., it's past her bedtime, and I talk to voicemail. It's such a shame what a woman Michelle is. For starters, she's unusually tall and striking. She's got a sharp mind, a winning personality, a pretty face, and obvious class. For good reason, her former husband had adored her, but some bad things happened toward the end of their 25th year together, and the marriage fizzled. For the first year after her divorce, Michelle was fine being relation, relationshipless, or so it seemed. She had her kids and her job to keep her busy. She also had the exploration and discovery of newfound singlehood, which can be as exciting as it is daring after a quarter of a century as someone's wife. But I think our unattached states hit us both hard the night we went to a fancy formal benefit for a local Jack and Jill chapter. The group had rented a spacious country club ballroom for the event, a fundraising dinner, auction, and dance, and organizers had outdone themselves, filling the place with magnificent flowers, exquisite food, great liquor, fantastic dance music, and thousands of tiny lights that made the room look like a twinkling night sky. About 200 people came. They were all coupled off, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, If there was a single man in the whole bunch, we didn't see him. Well, okay, there was this one guy. Let me put it this way. You know how they say a tux can make any man look great? That's a lie. (laughs) As couple after couple took to the dance floor, Michelle and I sat by ourselves at a table, playing with our food, swirling our drinks, staring at folk undulating to music we loved, and trying our best not to look wistful, lonely, or envious, which, of course, We were. On another occasion, Michelle invited me along on a trip to Nantucket, Massachusetts, that gorgeous sunny island getaway whose inhabitants are practically without exception rich. She was there for three days of dinners and parties related to her work as a lobbyist, and she'd secured a lovely hotel room near the bay. When I flew in a day after her, she was lazing in the tiny airport looking like relaxation incarnate. You're going to be sick, she said. Although I knew where she was going with this, I quizzically arched an eyebrow, urging her on. It's beautiful, exquisite, private, peaceful, and luxurious here, she said. The staff waits on you hand and foot. The food is good, too. The booze is good. The parties are happening. And here we are, two homegirls with no men to have a good time with, I added. You got it, she said. And don't expect it to find it here either, she cautioned. I've seen two black men since I've been here. One was a busboy, and the other looked like he was about ten. And everybody else is coupled off. Well, we had a good time anyway. We always do. But it sure would have been nice to pick up the phone and said, guess what I'm doing tonight? and have the answer be sup- something other than sponge painting the walls. So you see, the whole book is kind of a group of conversations, um, recollections, uh, chats that I've had with people. Sometimes it's these long, rambling testimonials from women. Some will really are, are really heartbreaking. And again, it's separated into all these different groups The shrinkers, the women, um, the the way Michelle and I were, or the way we became, certainly, uh, that's one who hopes that um, to make a love match in some place but really doesn't do anything to make it happen. It's like you expect him to come knock on the door or show up in a gift-wrapped or something. You don't go to the places. You don't make any real effort. You're just hoping for it, but not really taking any responsibility for it happening. The swingles are the ones who are just having the time of their lives, just dating or not dating or just partying and just having... Tickers are the ones who really feel that they have to move along kind of quickly because they want to have children and they want to do this by a certain time. They have their whole life laid out on a schedule, at least in their minds, and uh, time's a-wasting for them. Freestylers are the ones who I think are the most interesting uh, women, type of women in the book and the kind that is a growing um, class. These are women who are, have tossed out the rules, the old rules about uh, the old paradigm of age. He doesn't have to be uh, two to four years older than you. He can be two to four years younger. He can even be 20 years younger. He can be 40 years older. In other words, forget the age difference thing anymore and where a woman's place is in that Race. No longer just a man from my own ethnic group. It can be a man from any ethnic group, as long as he fits the bill. Uh, religion. You can imagine those same things. It doesn't have to, have to be religious, maybe, at all. It doesn't have to share my religion, whatever it may be. And probably the greatest one is economics, where we hear all the time, what about the Blue Collar Brothers? Exactly. Now, frankly, I have never had that problem, where, for some reason, throughout my life, even when I remember as a teenager and my friends would tell me, you know, this guy likes you and he's got this car. I didn't care what he had. I really never cared about that because that was what he had or didn't have. That meant nothing about what I had or didn't have. I have always gone for what I like inside a person. Always done that. And after my first divorce... (laughs) See that's what it gets you for always going after that. Uh, some friends caution me. Okay, first time you married for love. Now you married for money. I couldn't do it. I just, I just don't have that capacity. Now I know a lot of women who are looking for uh, a man who has good credit. <laughs> that's kind of their. That's that. That's their litmus test. <laughs> that's their, what they're looking for most. First and foremost. These are what I call your non-negotiables. There are things that we all have that you just won't bend over, um, and so freestylers are the ones who who have who have bent the rules and will continue to bend the rules all across the board. Um, and so when I, when women ask me as if I somehow have been mistaken for. Uh, a marriage counselor or a love counselor, a relationship counselor, just because I put together all these these uh, things that, that women have said. They're wrong, by the way. That's not the case. Still, I try to give some advice sometimes when they ask, because I have had a lot of experience, um, uh, when they ask me, you know, what do you think, why do you think is so tough for us? And I, I say, you know, I think Again, I think a lot of us are stuck to the old paradigm, you know, of where he has to be in age, in income, uh, race, religion, maybe even geography. We have all of those things stuck in our head, these rules to live by, and we refuse to give up on them. Now, that doesn't mean throw away your standards, but it does mean prioritize things in terms of those things that are negotiable and those things that are not negotiable. Every woman by a certain point in her life ought to know the things that she just will not put up with. And she will not bend over. And it doesn't matter if mama, sister, best friend, everybody else thinks that she's crazy for holding on to that. If that's just your thing, that you are doing yourself the greatest favor, I believe, by owning up to it and facing up to it because it is so difficult to be in a relationship where you have overlooked something and tried to tell yourself that you can talk yourself through it. You can learn to put up with it. You can, that meant so much to you to begin with. And all it does is let, is is allow resentment to build. I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. I've been married and divorced three times. And those were long marriages Uh, At least two of them were. (laughs) The first one was 13 years, produced three children. The second one was the classic textbook, What the Hell Was I Doing? Rebound, that was over in nine months, and the divorce decree was two paragraphs. Uh, The third one was 10 years and very intense. Um, And so I've spent a lot of time Married and a lot of times in relation, a lot of time in relationships, and I have paid attention. so and you know, when I say these things, it's not just some theory that I'm looking at. it's what I have lived and what I've lived through with my friends and loved ones when i when I mention these things. Um, the point that I would like to make, I guess, of the book is, you know, I, I had a bit of an argument with my original publisher. Um, which was um, uh, Warner Books, the same one that did Yet a Stranger. Because Warner, um, they got the idea for Soul Sisters when they bought the book. But then that editor left and went to another house, publishing house. And I got another editor who, who also got the idea. And but by the time I turned in the manuscript, the final manuscript, she had left. All these women were getting great promotions at other publishing companies. She had left. And then I had this woman who didn't get this at all. And she was wondering if I could add all of this these answers in the book about how you do this and kind of like the rules, you know, like a black version of the rules. And I said, uh uh-uh. uh, if you go back and you look at my uh, proposal. I said expressly, this will not be a how-to book. I don't like how-to books. I like to give people information and let them figure out how-to for themselves. And and I said, and you have to realize that my community knows that there's not a one, two, three, four, five, six answer to everything either. It can't be reduced that simply. So we really kind of had a falling out. And I just I tried to appease her some by going to a wonderful. A woman who's a, a sister who does relationship counseling professionally to get her advice about what these different types of women might do to um, to enhance their chances for finding satisfaction on the love front um, but that still wasn't enough she want, she literally wanted a list of how to do that, so we parted ways and because My point is not to say, here's how you fix this. My point is to make us think about this and to maybe come up with some new ideas for ourselves, but to think about this in the big picture, about what it means for our community and what it bodes for our community if we just go away, if we stop marrying and producing. You know, and... And I've got to say, the next book that I'm planning, just so you'll know, is called Men Come Home. And I I have really been trying to study what's happening to our young black men. And I think i finally... You know, I'm I'm not a sociologist, psychiatrist, anthropologist, any of that. You all know that. But, you know, I, I just... I want to know what it is, because when we exit that womb, we are programmed to want to please and to want to fit in and to want to be happy and to want to have satisfaction and to want to be part of something. That's just how we're wired. Something along the way eventually just pulls that out. What is it? See, I, I just know that's not something coming from the inside out. There are forces from the outside that are conspiring and just just working that kid over to make him so angry and can shoot anything, can take anything, can lie through anything, with seemingly without any sense of conscience or or regret whatsoever. Something's making that happen from the outside. What is that thing? Why? Who who doesn't want to live? Who you know? Who want, or who wants to live looking over their shoulder all the time? What is this about? And I just see such anger. And everybody say, yeah, black men are angry. These, these boys are angry. They're angry. They're angry. What are they angry about? You know what they're angry about? Where is he? Where is daddy? Why doesn't he want, why did he want me? Why wasn't he here to show me how to get, how to put on a tie? Why do I have to go ask mama to teach me how to tie a tie? That's what they're angry about. They're angry that they had to rely on other boys their own age to try to figure out how to be a man. Boy can't teach a boy how to be a man. And And you think about it. If the one who made you has at least in your mind said he doesn't give a damn about you, why in the world do you think that teacher is going to care about you? The person you work for is going to care about you. The landlord is going to care about you. You see, you have no tie to any loving. Hell yeah, you're going to be mad. And they don't even realize this is how deep it is. They don't some of them can articulate it, a lot of them don't even recognize where the anger really is coming from and what it is. But I'm telling you, think about the way it was some of you who are my age and older when every almost every household might have had a lousy daddy in it, but it had a daddy in it, didn't it? Everybody might have known, everybody know Mr. Jeffries drinks. You know, it might have been that kind of thing, but Mr. Jeffries was home every day and he was so-and-so's daddy. And you knew that if you did something down the street, you better be careful because somebody else was going to see you and they were going to tell your daddy. Because you, you had a daddy at home. Maybe a good daddy, maybe a mediocre daddy, maybe a lousy daddy, but you had a daddy. And those few times when a kid didn't have a daddy, you'd kind of feel sorry for him. And maybe you'd be a better friend to him. And your mother would make sure they came over sometimes, or your daddy would take him fishing with you when he took you fishing. My father used to reach out to a guy named Nathaniel <clears throat> who lived up the street to us, from us. He lived on, up the alley, actually, on the other side of, uh, of the block. And Nathaniel could sing, God he could sing came from, you know, lived with his mother and two other little brothers, and my father basically just kind of took him under his wing and everything, gave him a little work to do so he could earn some money, Don't, made him learn, you got to earn this money. Nathaniel was wonderful. Then he he enlisted in the military. He went over to Africa. He was assigned to Africa. He came back. I'll never forget this. He had sleeping sickness. It was bitten by the Tsetse fly. And Nathaniel ended up in like as a... Uh, being arrested for he became a chronic peeping tom, it was the saddest thing to me because i you know I remember and it broke my father 's heart you know to see this happen to him He really wasn 't much that we could do or anybody else could do about it. he was sick he he was sick but I remember my father reaching out to this kid, I remember, I can't tell you the times that I would come home, we would come home from school, there would be some little dirty snotty nosed kid in our bathtub that my parents had picked up somewhere or somehow befriended I mean you can't do that kind of thing now anymore either. But I'm just saying there were enough fathers that somebody, there were enough fathers that they even had some fathering left over, in other words, for other children. These kids are angry that nobody's there to love them, to teach them how to be a man. they got to try to figure it out for themselves. And nobody wants to tell them, yeah, you're strong enough. They feel like they have to prove it some other way all the time. And and then the only club that lets them in because they hear no, 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 get out all the time is a club that never says no. And they want you to prove how much of a man you are with some distorted, ridiculous idea of what the proof should be. We've, we've messed it up, y'all. We've messed it up. I want the men come home. And what what I hope that that book will do will not only tell the men what they need to do, it will tell the women what we need to do to stop this sometimes war that goes on between us, and it will tell the whole society, including government, what it needs to do because this has been the result of a series of policy failures one after the other everything from the um, uh, from black vote and poll taxes to separating um, to segregated armed services to of course the lynching and the black codes to the welfare system that was first set up so that women who had a man in the house could not get the benefits to the drug policy and the incarceration policies and three strikes are out it has been one thing after another wrong and so the society has The hugest part of this to play, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of failures, but so do we women, and so do the men. Because at some point, as I've always believed, yes, you are a victim, but at some point you have to say, I'm through being victimized which never, and this is what gets me as somebody who's always called this do-good or liberal and is so despised by so many people because of what I say. And, and, you know, this whole new movement with the black movement, you see this young black conservative movement now will say, you know, that I preach victimhood and that, you know, really we ought to talk about self-empowerment like the two can't go together. But what I always try to say is this. I use this example of a true story that that I remember from years ago in the news. A man was out in the woods. He worked as part of a team, clear-cutting. His teammate had done part of a job and had to leave. He had to finish the job. He kept cutting on the tree. The tree fell on his legs and pinned him under. It was because his teammate... His partner had not made his cuts correctly, and so the tree fell the wrong way, pinning him. Now, he ended up, with nobody coming for help, amputating his own leg and crawling to get help and save his life. Now, is he a victim? You bet he was. Was it his fault? No. But you know what? If he had stayed there the whole time talking about whose fault it was, he would have. Been, it wouldn't have been any him left. So what I say about us is that what we do with this, let's find out what went wrong. Who, who made the mistake or who did the evil? Let's hold them accountable. I don't believe. Let's just start over. And forget about and be colorblind. No, bull. No, we're not doing that. Because you haven't proven to me you learned anything that way. Let's talk about what was wrong. I want to hear you accept responsibility for that. Let's set up a system so that can't happen again. Or there's some kind of safety valve or some kind of checks. And then let's get this man's leg taken care of. That's the way you And he goes on with his life. That's the way we do in a racist condition. We don't just start over and pretend and and then let people accuse us of, of talking about victimhood if we want to talk about getting the bad guy. No, the bad guy has to be held accountable. The partner had to be held accountable for what he did because it caused damage. They had to figure out what he did wrong, so nobody else would do that thing again. So those are, and still you get help and you move on with your life. So they aren't mutually exclusive to point out the victim, and at the same time, self-empower. I think it's ridiculous just to self-empower. I think it's irresponsible, because then you leave that problem open to happen to somebody else. So, that's a lot to say for a book that's only mm, 130-something pages long. Um, but, you know, my mind is churning all the time about these ways that I'm, I'm just fascinated about the things that we do and how we connect with each other, and how we fail to connect, and how we misunderstand and misread each other, and how we don't even try. That's the part that gets me. I, I am in a Fabulous relationship now that has taught me what it's really like to have somebody actually Really listening to me Really listening to me. I mean and I'm, I'm kind of amazed by it. It's, and as you can tell I can talk but you know I keep thinking waiting for him to say, you know, okay That's enough and he's like, go on you know, he'll everything else puts aside. This is over and over and over again and Values what I say I matter It means something. And I keep hoping that my son will not have so much, you know, of that macho thing going for himself that he doesn't mind, you know, telling us, no, man, wait, my lady is speaking. You know, that he doesn't mind letting anybody see him being tender with her. And where is the tenderness in our community we used to have? For one another, I'm not just talking about... You know, I'm talking about platonically, neighborly, every the tenderness. Everything is so hard, so hard. And my son, who is a uh, something of a poet and lyricist, what? And I may have said this the last time I was here because it never leaves me. I think all the time about him talking about, in one little rap he did, I, this line I remember where he's saying, brother, smile at me." And he talks about how you know, he can walk down the street now and see a group of strangers and you got to, you know, put on your armor like this says, you know, you either have to don't make eye contact with them or if you do, you have to say, you know, don't try anything. With a stranger. Where is the, hey man, how you doing? Where's the tenderness? Brother, just smile at me. So there there is so much work to do and I wish it were as simple as what Bill Cosby would have us do. Um, I agree with almost everything he says, essentially. I hate the way he said it. Um, I hate how how um, incomplete it is. Again, it's just talking about what we can do as a community. And it's leaving the un- unindicted co-conspirators <laughs> to, to go their merry way that's irresponsible because it leaves them to live and do that same thing again another day to another group of people without having paid any price or learned any lesson from it you can't do it that way it is not just us and he we all know he's not the first one to have preached the message that he's been preaching we've all heard that we've all maybe given that same message ourselves but boy is there some work to do to build a family, to build it back up again, to pull back our dignity. As I try to tell young people, my adult children always worry about that something's going to happen to me someday on the metro because I will intervene when I see some of our kids get on there and act crazy, whereas we used to say act a fool. Uh, you know, loud, profane. Uh, running up and down, you know, ter- no, and they know what they're doing. They know they're terrorizing everybody. They know that, and that's what they're getting off on. And I kind of I kind of dig that in a way. I mean, I kind of know how that feels to try to say, okay, for this moment, I got some power, okay, and, and you're going to sit down and shut up. I understand that, At the same token. But there are times when it has gotten really out of hand and very um, embarrassing and calling each other nigger all across the place, you know, that kind of thing. And I will speak up to them. And I will say, I always started out with sweetheart to try to let them know instead of, hey, boy, you know, sweetheart, I'm hoping that they'll get, I'm with you and I'm for you. And what I say is, get your dignity back. Usually makes them stop and think for a second. A lot of times they go, what? I say, get your dignity back. Well, it's kind of hard to argue. With that, I don't say quit acting a fool, quit being. I just say get your dignity back. And so far, so good. Now, the time may come that somebody feels like he has to prove how big and bad he is as somebody, but I can't stop doing that. I feel like I have to do something because I'm old school enough that you know everybody's mama had a right, <laughs> everybody's daddy had a right to tell us how to behave. And I'm hoping that that will help them sometime. And, and I've had some really wonderful responses sometimes from that, from, from kids who really pull it together real quick. yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. You know, like they wanted to show me what good manners they actually had. And I really appreciated that. I said, that's okay. I know how it feels sometimes. But, you know, just keep your dignity. And it's just a nice moment. Um, and I, I just wish we could just show more tenderness and take more chances that way.